Good morning, Calvary. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Please stand and turn with me to the passage in your copy of God's Word. Luke 1, 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, Calvary. And uh, it's good we finally made it here. Sorry, uh, we were a little bit late. I think Molly Hamilton put in the, uh, I know you are, she put in the notes on Facebook that this is an age in which even church can be late to church. And uh, it's true. So we were late to church this morning, but here we are. So thank you for uh, sticking with us and joining, uh, and sticking with it and joining us this morning. I want to give a quick word uh, that this is our uh, first Sunday of the month, so we'll be uh, celebrating uh, communion together. And uh, so I just want to give you that reminder. So if you need to grab your uh, communion uh, supplies or elements, you can do that uh, now here at the beginning, so you're ready to go by the end of the sermon. All right, so last week we began our season of Advent by looking at the prophecy of Malachi, which was the prophecy of the Elijah-like messenger that would be sent in advance of, of the Lord's coming in the great day of the Lord. And the messenger, as we saw, was John the Baptist. And the Lord, whose way he was preparing the way for, was and is Jesus. And so this second week of Advent here, we, as we move forward in the story, Uh, And uh, the prophecy has now, that was prophesied back in Malachi, has now, as we move forward in the story, come true. The messenger has arrived, and so has the Lord, whose way he was sent to prepare. So this morning, we're going to look at this very first meeting between the messenger and the Lord. It's an unusual meeting, and... um, it gives us a unique window into the heart of what it means to meet with Jesus, which is very appropriate for us in this season of Advent as we collectively reenact this season of waiting to meet Jesus, as it were, at Christmas. And when we finished looking at this unique meeting between John and Jesus, this first meeting, then we're going to conclude the service by taking communion together, which is that sacred moment each month where we celebrate meeting with the Lord collectively as a congregation. So our text, which has been read for us, is from Luke chapter 1, 39 through 45, and we're dropping kind of into the middle of the beginning of the Christmas story. 
And since last week's sermon, it's been 400 years in our story since the prophecy of the messenger. So I want to just give us a quick summary of how we got from there to here and also kind of what's going on in the Christmas story as we drop in to Luke 1, 39 through 45. So last week uh, we saw that Israel had been released from exile. They were back in their homeland, but they were still under the rule of an overlord. In that case, it was Persian rule. But the Persians, if you know your ancient Near Eastern history, the Persians were eventually conquered by Alexander the Great. And then Alexander uh, the Great, uh, his kingdom spun into a number of different kingdoms. And so Israel was kind of kicked around a bit between overlords, went from Persian rule to to Hellenistic rule, to different Hellenistic rule. And then there were some different things that happened in there. And then eventually they ended up under Roman rule. And so when the curtain lifts on the pages of the New Testament, Israel is under the lordship of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would occasionally appoint local magistrates to rule the places that they had conquered. And so Rome has appointed Herod, who is a a half Jew from uh, in and around that area, as the local client king over Jerusalem and Judea. During Herod's reign, he embarked on massive building campaigns, and he's the one that built the massive temple of Jesus's day. So when Jesus shows up and there's this massive temple, that is largely from Herod's uh, construction projects. So he's got this grand new temple that he's made. It's, uh, it's a marvel of kind of a, the ancient world. And as we open up to Luke chapter 1, that's the setting and the context in which we find ourselves. And in fact, we're inside Herod's temple when we get to Luke chapter 1. The priest, Zechariah, is performing his priestly duties in this temple that Herod has made when the angel Gabriel shows up, appears to him, and tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to be the parents of this long-ago prophesied messenger from all the way back 400 years ago in Malachi's prophecy. Now, this is shocking news because... Well, an angel announcing the birth of your baby is always going to be shocking news, no matter who you are. But it was even more shocking because Zachariah and Elizabeth were well advanced in years, the scriptures tell us. Elizabeth was barren. They've had no children, and they're well past childbearing years. They don't expect to have any children. They've long ago given up hope of that. So they're very similar to Abraham and Sarah, if you remember that story from back earlier in our sermon series. Zachariah and Elizabeth, sure enough, are going to have a child, Gabriel says. His name will be called John, and he will be the prophesied messenger that Malachi's prophecy spoke about, who will prepare the coming of the Lord. So after 400 long years, in which there's really been no prophetic word from the Lord during this 400 years, the messenger and the Lord whose way he's coming are at last on the scene. This is an amazing moment. And then in 126, after we kind of get this picture of the, this Gabriel's message that the messenger is coming, Gabriel then goes to visit with the mother of the Lord who is coming. Gabriel goes to Nazareth, which is a town in and around Judea, visits with Elizabeth's cousin, Mary. She's a little village girl and Gabriel tells Mary that she is going to give birth to the Lord. Gabriel goes on to tell Mary that her baby's name will be Jesus, which means 
God saves, that he will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. And he will sit on David's throne. So this is going to be the messianic figure that is we've been waiting for ever since Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when the whole thing went south. And he is going to reign forever on the house of Israel and his kingdom will have no end. So here at last comes this messianic figure. This promise that has been given to Eve so long ago has wound its way through the pages of history, through the pages of the Bible and has found its way to Mary. And at last here, it will come true through Mary. The birth of this Lord will be even more miraculous than the birth of the messenger. The birth of the messenger is, of course, astounding because it's coming, he's coming through aged parents. But, but the Lord of the messenger will be born of God himself by the Holy Spirit through Mary without an earthly husband. So this is a miraculous birth. So after 400 years of silence, God breaks into human history in a dramatic way. And truth be told, he has always been working throughout the pages of history. He's always been working to bring about his purposes, leading to this very moment when the promise would come true. Through all the long years of silence, through all the long years of Israel's suffering, through all the long years of darkness, God has surely been working to bring about his purpose. So sure enough, both prophecies indeed do come true. Elizabeth conceives the messenger by Zechariah. Mary conceives Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And then the two women carrying their divinely appointed cargo meet for the first time since their conceptions, which brings us to our text this morning. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 39 As we move into our text, we read that after Mary has been given this word from Gabriel that she's going to conceive this promised son, that Mary goes in haste to a town in Judah to visit Elizabeth. Now, we're not told exactly why she goes in haste, but I think it seems reasonable to suppose that since Mary has been told that Elizabeth is herself the subject of a miraculous pregnancy, And then Mary is the subject of a miraculous pregnancy. That seems like a good person to go have a conversation with. And so Mary hurries off to to talk all this through with Elizabeth. And in verse 41, we read that when Elizabeth, so Mary gets to Elizabeth's house. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the little messenger inside of Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And then Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, seems at that moment to be given a supernatural word from God about Mary's pregnancy. So we don't have any reason to think that Elizabeth knows all the details of what's going on in Mary's life, but the Holy Spirit has revealed this to her. And look what she exclaims in verse 42 and 43. She exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. So she's recognizing that Mary is carrying her Lord. It's this dramatic moment. But then look and pay close attention to verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Full of the Holy Spirit, 
Elizabeth tells Mary that the baby John leapt in her womb as soon as the sound of Mary's voice came to her ears. So Elizabeth at this point is somewhere around five months pregnant. So little John is still just a little guy. And how could John still in the womb know enough about Jesus to leap for joy in Jesus's presence? Let's just reflect on that a little bit. If we think about knowing as intellectual knowledge, then clearly John knew nothing about Jesus. His brain at this point in utero is not developed enough to where he can think in ways that he will eventually be able to do. So he can't think thoughts or have intellectual comprehension about Jesus. But there are two kinds of knowings. I've been reading St. Maximus, the confessor, as no doubt so many of, of you have been reading during Advent. And um, St. Maximus is a, uh, he's a theologian and a monk from the seventh century. And he writes about two different ways of knowing. So listen to what he writes. He says, on the one hand, there is a relative knowledge rooted only in reasons and ideas. On the other hand, there is a truly authentic knowledge gained only by actual experience, apart from reasons and ideas, which provides total perception of the known object through participation in that object. So do you follow the distinction that St. Maximus is making there? Put simply, it's the difference between knowing intellectually about something and actually knowing something by experience. You can have experiential knowledge of an object or a person, even if you don't have intellectual knowledge of an object or a person. So for instance, a newborn baby. A newborn baby truly knows his mom by experience, by participatory knowledge, even if he doesn't yet intellectually know what a mom even is. Why does a baby stop crying when he's picked up by his mother? Not because he rationally thinks to himself, this is my mom, she will take care of me. He can't rationally think, but all the same, he knows experientially that this particular woman is his mother and that she is his protector and his provider. He can't define protector. He can't even think protector or provider, but he knows what they are. He knows that this is the same woman in whose womb he has been his whole life and that he belongs to her and that she belongs to him. So whatever he is afraid of or bothered by is put to rest by her nearness. He submits himself to her care. He yields to her care and it brings him peace. His brain is too small to define concepts like mother or care. But in his soul, in the depths of his person, he knows who she is truly and meaningfully. He has, as St. Maximus says, a total perception of his mom gained by actual experience. And he knows what it is to yield to her comfort and to her nearness. And it's the same for little John in the womb. In the same way that a newborn baby 
yields to and rejoices in the presence of his mother, the preborn John yields to and rejoices in the presence and the nearness of Jesus. Little John can't speak words about Jesus. He can't understand words about Jesus. He can't even think words about Jesus. But in the depths of his little soul, the person of Jesus is miraculously made near to him by the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, John miraculously experiences Jesus, even though he doesn't intellectually understand Jesus. And in his experience of Jesus, he knows Jesus and he leaps for joy. Now, all this, I think it's very precious. It's very beautiful. And there are any number of ways that we could go to apply or to try to think about the implications of this first encounter between the messenger and the Lord, between little Jesus and little John. There are a number of examples, and I'm not going to go into full of here, but let me just kind of tease out a couple of them. So, for example, John's story has obvious relevance for Christianity's stance on the sanctity of unborn life. Babies, even in the womb, are people who can know and experience things, can know and experience Jesus even, if the Holy Spirit chooses to reveal him even if they can't put cognitive thoughts together. And there's a whole sermon worth of insight there about the sanctity of such little people so dependent upon their mothers for care and about the grace of God for all the times that we've failed as parents to protect our children. And by God's grace, I'll tend to preach that sermon one day. Or there's another sermon to be preached here about how John's story also has relevance for all the human beings who have cognitive disabilities. The good news of John's story is that we don't have to have intellectual understanding about the facts and the doctrines about who Jesus is in order to know and to love Jesus. We don't have to make sense of intellectually all the truths, as it were, of the gospel in order to receive the gospel because the gospel is the person of Jesus. So no one need fear that a person or a child's cognitive impairment is an impassable barrier that stands between them and true faith. Simply, it's not the case. And I want to preach a sermon on that one day too. But this morning, I want to focus our attention on what John's example teaches us about the true meaning of meeting and knowing Jesus. The essence of our salvation is not based upon the information that we intellectually understand about Jesus. You think about what it means to be a Christian and what is Christianity all about. It's not summed up or contained simply in the intellectual information that we have and understanding who Jesus is. We don't have to pass a doctrinal test to experience the love of Christ. And indeed, knowing doctrine without truly knowing and rejoicing in Jesus, it just makes us a Pharisee. It's all head knowledge without the experience of the heart. The defining moment of salvation for John and for all of us is when Christ himself, not just the idea of Christ, but Christ himself draws near to us and we meet him and we rejoice in him. 
To know Jesus, to really know Jesus, is not nearly, merely to know a bunch of information about him. That can be important, and it can be helpful. It is important, and it is helpful, but it's not the real thing or the main thing. The real thing, the main thing, is knowing Jesus in the experience and in knowing him experientially to rejoice in him and to love him. So listen, this Advent season... At any point throughout the whole year, you can know all sorts of information about Jesus. But that accounts for nothing if you don't truly know Jesus and rejoice in him. I've heard people say at various points that you can't or that one is not born a Christian. And I, and I get that. And I think that's a helpful, uh, it's, it's helpful and generally true statement because just being born into a Christian family doesn't automatically make one a Christian. But I would want to qualify that statement just a little bit in light of John's story. Because you can, if God so chooses in his grace to reveal himself to you, you can come out of the womb like John, already knowing and loving Jesus already yielded to him in your soul, already aware of your deep and innate need for him, already loving and rejoicing in him. Before you can put all these thoughts together in your mind, you know all of this to be true. If you can know and love your mom as an infant, you can know and love Jesus even as an infant too. So when my children were still in the womb and when they were still too young to understand intellectually about Jesus even after they had been born, I would pray that the Holy Spirit would come to them like he came to John and open their eyes to see Jesus as he truly is. And that in seeing Jesus, they would love him and they would rejoice in him. Not that I wouldn't pray that one day they would come to know Jesus. I would pray that right then in that moment, even as infants, that they in their infancy would know Jesus. And that's still how I pray for my kids today. And that's how I think we should pray for everyone, child or adult. And that's how we should pray for ourselves even. St. Maximus, who I quoted uh, earlier, was talking about the two different kinds of knowings because he was talking about knowing God. That was the subject of his comments. To truly know God means that we must move past merely knowing ideas about God. We must have participative knowledge, as he says, about God. The sort of knowledge that causes us to rejoice in God. So do you know God that way? Jesus is not just an idea to be affirmed. He is a living person to be known and experienced. Love for Jesus does not spring from doctrines about Jesus. And you know, I like, I like my doctrine. Why else would I be reading St. Maximus in my free time? I like my doctrine. But love for Jesus, true and real love for Jesus, is born out of the experience of Jesus. We love him insofar as we experience him. Some of you are listening this morning whether you have been in the church for a long time or maybe you're just brand new to church, you're listening this morning and you're processing all of that and you're like, I don't get that because I haven't experienced Jesus. 
I, I, I know about him. I can say things about him. I, I, can, I can maybe even articulate doctrines about Jesus, but he's an historical figure in the past. I can talk about Abraham Lincoln and I can talk about things that happened in the past, but I've never met Abraham Lincoln. And that's what Jesus is to me. He's, he's a living person, but he's somewhere else. He's far away and I've never met him and I've never experienced him. And here's, I think, where I can feel inadequate as a pastor, frankly, because Jesus is not a genie in the bottle and I just hand you the magic lamp and you rub it, th- rub it three times and Jesus pops out. I can't package him up and hand him to you. I can give you information about Jesus, but I, I can't give you Jesus himself. He's a real person with a living, moving, real will of his own. He comes and goes as he pleases. As C.S. Lewis says of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. But here's what I can tell you. If you open yourself up to seeking God, to being found by God, he will come to meet with you. That is his promise. And that is the testimony of the church throughout our history. Not merely the idea of him, but him truly and really, the living resurrected person of Jesus Christ will come to meet with you. God's arrival into our lives, it's not the same for each person. I could tell you my stories of how I met Jesus. It may not be the exact same like how Jesus has met others or will meet you. Sometimes God enters into our lives dramatically and it's like the light switch just suddenly flipped on and we went from darkness to light like Paul on the road to Damascus, if you know that story. Other times, God enters our lives quietly and gradually, and it's like the dimmer switch slowly coming on, lighting the room, and we look up, and all of a sudden, we noticed it's gotten brighter, and we're like, hey, when did you get here? And we didn't really even hear him or see him coming, but we just realized he's there. The decisive thing, the most vital thing, is that he himself shows up and that we meet him. That's the decisive thing. And if he can make himself known to little John in the womb, then he can make himself known to you. One of the very first passages of scripture that I ever memorized back in my teenage years, I was probably 15 or 16 years old when I memorized this passage of scripture from Proverbs chapter two, the first verses. And I still have them memorized, but I've written them down. So I don't forget them in this moment because I want you to hear them. But Solomon, as he's writing out his Proverbs, he writes a prayer at the beginning of his Proverbs. And I think it captures the spirit that should mark our lives. And Proverbs says this, my son, if you accept my words and you store up my commands within you, if you call out for insight and you cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and you search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It's God's promise to us that if we set our heart to seeking after God, this experiential knowledge of God, if we search for him with the same energy and fervency that we would search for silver or for gold, if we humble ourselves and we cry out to him to reveal himself to us, then we will come to experientially understand the fear of the Lord and find the participative knowledge of God. And that brings us here to our moment 
of communion. From the church's earliest days, Christians have hallowed communion as a sacred time of meeting with the risen Lord. All the way back in Leviticus 17, under the law, the law stated that the life is in the blood of the sacrifice. And in John chapter 6, Jesus picks up that basic truth and he teaches us that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is to signify our participation in Christ's life. And so as we think about that first meeting between John and Jesus and about how the decisive thing is not merely knowing about Jesus, but actually knowing Jesus experientially to have participative knowledge in Jesus. That's exactly what communion is all about. Communion signifies our participative knowledge of Jesus. So listen here to the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He's talking about communion to the church at Corinth. And he says, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not our participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not our participation in the body of Christ? If we belong to Christ, and Christ is always with us, but there's something unique about this moment of communion, that moment when together we celebrate and recognize and remember the nearness of Christ. To participate in the elements is to participate, Paul tells us, in Christ. Advent is this season where we remember the Lord's coming and communion is this sacred time in the life of a church where we remember the Lord's nearness. So we're taking time this morning as we've talked about John's example of meeting with Jesus, knowing Jesus. We're taking time this morning here in communion to draw near to the Lord and to meet with him, to have an experience of the Lord, a participation in the Lord, not just to remember historical truths or historical information about what's happened in the past or doctrines that the communion points to, but in this moment to participate in Christ. So if you're a believer this morning, if you have laid hold of Christ and you have participated in him and he has filled you with his Holy Spirit and like John, you have leapt for joy in the presence of Christ. And this is another time to come together for us and to remember this moment as a church. And I invite you to do it with us. We're scattered abroad throughout Oak Park and the surrounding area. But if you belong to Christ, then this moment of communion is a chance for you to commune with Christ. If you're not belonging to Christ, if you don't know him, if you've never met with him, he's just a person you've heard about, but you haven't laid hold of him for real in your heart, then this moment isn't for you, but this moment could be for you in the future. I'm going to take some time here before we partake of the elements just to reflect and to have a, a moment to connect and to meet with Christ, to invite him back into, as it were, into our lives and to experience him. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then I encourage you to use that time to, to seek after Christ, even as Proverbs chapter 2 
talks about, to call out for insight, to cry aloud for understanding that Christ would make himself known to you. Father, thank you for giving us Christ. We couldn't find our way to knowing you. We couldn't even really know about you without Christ, let alone know you without Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us in fresh ways and help us to experience the presence and the nearness of Christ. And like John, may we leap for joy in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.